please be seated. I am very pleased that Professor James Lennox, Professor of the History of and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh is with us tonight. Most of us at St. John's were introduced to Professor Lennox through Aristotle, one of the authors whom our freshmen read in the first few weeks of laboratory and then again in the second semester uh, in seminar and whom we all return to again and again. In his books, translations, commentaries, and articles, Professor Lennox, we find, has thought deeply about many aspects of Aristotle's works, not only about the various treatises on living beings, but also about Aristotle's understanding of biology as a science and how he divides it into different kinds of sciences and how it relates to all of his logical writings. One reviewer has said of James Lennox that he, with only a few others, has put Aristotle's biology on a firmer foundation than it has been since antiquity. We are very grateful for his fine, penetrating reflections, which help us so much in our studies of Aristotle. Please welcome James Lennox. light. <laughs> Um, I really uh, appreciate it and uh, I've had uh, two currently at least two PhD students who started their academic careers here at St. John's. One of them is with me tonight. Keith, where are you? Keith Beamer. Um, and uh, so I uh, understand well the, ooh, this is a little too, uh, they'll turn it down. Good. Um, I understand well how you people are trained and how you're trained particularly to read texts very carefully. So the lecture tonight is going to be strenuous. You're going to have to work hard. Uh, we're going to read a lot of texts. We're going to look at them very, very carefully. But I trust you to, to do that because I know that's what, you've, that's what you've been trained to do. Um, I have been for a very long time interested in the way in which Aristotle's general philosophical perspective informs the way he approaches uh, nature, the way he approaches understanding nature. And what I'm going to be doing tonight is looking at a very small part of a treatise of Aristotle's, the Parva Naturalia, and uh, looking at that treatise as a way into how Aristotle thinks you ought to approach a natural inquiry, how you ought to approach um, an inquiry into a specific natural phenomenon. And you'll understand why we have this newt stage salamander with gills here on the, on the screen uh, as, we, as we progress. But I also know that at some stage in your academic career here, you will be reading William Harvey's De Motu Cordis, if you haven't already. I've been spending a lot of time with Harvey over the last few years as well um, to indicate the creative way in which people who approach nature from an Aristotelian perspective were playing a very active role in the scientific revolution because I simply don't believe the story that the scientific revolution was defined by people turning their backs on Aristotle and looking looking in a different direction. Uh, Harvey's teacher at the medical school at Padua was uh, Fabricius uh, of Aquapendente, and in his Opera Omnia, uh, in the introduction, he makes this remark. We devote this treatise to the stomach, intestines, throat, bowels, and muscles of the anus and abdomen. Notice it's the digestive system, nutritive system, 
However, we are pursuing these things pros acribean and not pros ten opsin, as Aristotle uses these terms in On Respiration. That is, exactly and most thoroughly, and not for the eyes only, and in, as I might say, popular anatomy. That's a uh, I think a bad misreading of what Aristotle means by that distinction in On Respiration, as we'll see, but it shows you that Fabricius was reading that work for normative guidance on how to investigate nature. For this reason, he goes on, we will explore, uh, as we usually do, three things concerning each organ. Historia, the history of the organ, which he now interprets as a study of the structure or anatomy of these organs, then the action of the organ, and third, its utilities, which in this period of time in the Renaissance means looking into their final causes, their purposes, what the organs are for. And William Harvey refers back to Fabricius's uh, work on respiration right at the beginning of De Motu Cordis, when he says of the lungs, their use and movement, and of all manner of cooling, uh, of the necessity and use of air, etc., cetera, uh, I shall leave them to be set forth in a treatise by themselves, indicating that he's going to write a treatise on respiration. And later in chapter 17, he actually refers to a treatise on respiration that he's going to write which he, of course, never does actually write. We don't have at least anything by Harvey of that nature. Um, in The Generation of Animals, he also makes a reference, and he raises the question about whether respiration is for the sake of cooling or for some other purpose. And he'll discuss this further in some other treatise. Unfortunately, we don't have it, but you'll notice how thoroughly Aristotelian uh, this description of his future treatise is. He's going to look into respiration, and in particular, he's going to look into what its final cause is, what it's for the sake of, what is the purpose of respiration. And he's raising a question, is it for cooling or for something else? All right, well, we're gonna look at Aristotle's work on that very subject, and um, I'm going to put this in the framework of work I've been doing recently. I'm about to finish a book on, on the subject um, about Aristotle's general views about scientific inquiry. Uh, what I'm arguing in that book is that Aristotle thinks that you can make a kind of analytic distinction between an information gathering and organizing stage of science uh, which he typically refers to as historia, history. Um, and that is distinguishable from an investigation into the causes that explain the facts that you've gathered and organized. But he also thinks that from the very beginning, those investigations are guided by norms of inquiry, by rules about how you ought to inquire if you ever hope to achieve knowledge of the subject that you're inquiring into. And I'm going to be arguing in that book that there is, uh, for Aristotle, a very clear distinction between very general norms of inquiry, which he talks about in the posterior analytics, which are going to be true for any inquiry you make at all, whether it's into mathematics or into natural philosophy or even into ethics. But there are also local norms that guide inquiries that are quite specific to the distinctive kinds of inquiries you make and that you can't learn anything about them at the abstract level. Those norms you learn about by actually mucking around in the different domains and gaining experience of those domains and learning uh, about them uh, in a preliminary kind of way. And uh, I've argued in a, a recent paper that those norms you will find typically in the introductions to Aristotle's scientific works. So uh, many of you I know have read at least parts of the Parts of Animals, book one. And as most people realize, book one isn't actually uh, part of the investigation of the Parts of Animals. 
It's a kind of philosophical introduction to how you ought to carry on an investigation into, uh, into animals. Um, that's a typical example of Aristotle specifying these local norms of inquiry that you need to follow in order to carry out an investigation in a particular domain, in that, in that case, in a biological domain. And he often, in book one of the parts of animals, contrasts the norms for governing that kind of inquiry from the norms you would be following if you were doing cosmology, if you were doing the kind of thing that we see in his De Kylo, for example because the objects that you're inquiring into are very, very different. And our access to the objects in these different domains is radically different. What I'm going to do today is focus on uh, a little part of a, a larger treatise, the Parva Naturalia, and I'll make a, a few remarks as I go along um, to indicate that I believe this is actually one treatise. Uh, it's often treated as a whole bunch of small treatises on separate subjects that have sort of been gathered together willy-nilly and don't have any real integrity to them. Uh, I'll actually be arguing that there's a great deal of integrity to the whole thing, but we're going to be focusing on his discussion of respiration in that treatise uh, in order to get a sense for the particular kinds of norms that govern uh, the particular kind of inquiry he's involved with there. And in particular, I want to look at what he says about the role of dissection in that kind of inquiry and the way in which dissection ought to be carried on if you're actually going to acquire knowledge about an organic system. And that refers basically back to the title of my talk. I think this is the origins of the field that would today be referred to as functional anatomy. All right, so um, here's a couple of examples of general norms of inquiry that Aristotle lays out in uh, more universal general treatises. So in the physics, in book two, he's talking about the way in which you should inquire into natural things and the contrast class is mathematics, where you can abstract from matter and focus only on uh, numerical and geometrical properties of objects. And in the case of natural things, um, he says their nature is twofold, as matter and as form. Every natural thing has a material and a formal nature. And he says we should study them as if we were investigating what snubness is, the shape of a particular kind of nose. Um, and he says that means studying things neither without matter nor according to matter. So the idea is you have to focus on these as material objects, but you have to focus also on their form, not just the stuff they're made out of, but the particular form. And he likes the example of snubness because you have this word that essentially refers to shape in a particular kind of matter. It doesn't refer to shape. Concave would be the word you would use for the shape. Flesh and bone is the word you would use for the material, but snub refers to concaveness in flesh and bone. That's the very meaning of the word. So the very reference of the word is a material formal unity and that's what he likes about this example. So that's a very general normative claim about how to investigate natural things. You have to study them as material formal unities. But it's not very helpful. I mean, that doesn't really give you guidance. Okay, all right, I get that, but how do I actually study things in order to study them that way? What, what, it doesn't help me to say study them as if you're studying snubness. True enough. Um, and this doesn't help much either, but it does add one little component. This is a little bit later in book two, and he makes the same point about natural things being um, this, having this dual nature, material and formal. So he says the nature of the thing is twofold, in one way is matter, another is form, and the nature as form is an end, a telos. 
while other things are for the sake of the end. And since that's the case, this, namely the nature as form, would be the cause for the sake of which, or as we say since the scholastic period, the final cause. So here he's identifying the formal nature of the thing with the final cause. And he's saying the materials are as they are because they're organized for the sake of the form. So that tells you that the unity is a specific kind of unity in natural things. It's a teleological unity. The material is of the kind it is for the sake of the kind of form that it's the material of. So the unity is a peculiar kind of unity. So that helps, that gets us a little bit further along the road, but it's still pretty vague, pretty general. So what I'd like to do is look at a specific case where we can get a concrete idea of what the hell he's talking about here. So that's what I'm gonna try to do. Now, before I do that, let me just mention that um, some people would argue that, yeah, okay, I get it. One of the things that's going on here is Aristotle's telling you that the final cause ought to kind of guide your inquiry when you're studying natural things. But uh, that's pretty easy because the, the functions of things are obvious. You know, it's pretty obvious what this is for. I'm holding it, I'm pushing buttons, it's doing things for me. Pretty obvious. My eyes, I'm looking out at you, it's pretty obvious they're for seeing. You know, it's... So um, Rob Bolton, for example, in a, in a paper in 1997 wrote, it's arguable that final causes are normally better known to us. That's Aristotle's view for sort of the things we're, you know, early on in an investigation familiar with. As for instance, the final cause and function of the eye or the hand is better known to us. Well, sure enough, we all know what these are for, we all know what these are for. Um, you've probably by now figured out what this is for. Um, okay, fair enough. For the things we've all been using since we were, you know, babies, pretty obvious. Okay, uh, now, some of you may know what, what I'm about to show you is for. But I want you to just realize that it wouldn't be obvious when you cut open the head of an organism and looked inside it what this was for, right? Um, so that's the, as you can see from the labels, but you wouldn't have labels if you were dissecting, um, the semicircular canal and it's uh, part of the organ system that we use to keep ourselves uh, balanced and stable as we move around in a gravitational field. And it helps us that way. Um, so that's one problem. You certainly wouldn't know that what that was for when you were cutting open an organism and looking at it. It wouldn't be obvious at all. How, how would you figure that out? And here's something else. So would you think that was the same thing? But in fact, at a certain level of universality and description, it is the same thing. Those, this is in a shrimp. Um, sorry, I have a thing here that I can, whoop. I somehow went all the way back. I went forward, let me go back one, there we are. Uh, so Tom told me that I have this. So, the way this works is this ball inside the shrimp's statocyst rolls around depending on the orientation of the shrimp, hits these different cilia, uh, they light up different sensory receptors which send neurological signals to the central nervous system of the shrimp telling the shrimp its orientation. So this plays exactly the same role for the shrimp that this plays for you and me. Um, would you ever be able to figure that out? I have a reason for asking you this question, as you'll see, because Aristotle goes through exactly the same kind of problematic reasoning in On Respiration. All right, so let's turn to the discussion of respiration then. Um, as I say, it's part of a treatise called uh, the Parva Naturalia, the little works on nature. 
Um, most people treat these as a whole bunch of individual treatises that some editor stuck together for some reason or other, but if you read the introduction to the Parva Naturalia, it's pretty clear that Aristotle sees a unity to all of these works. Um, so in the first 17 lines, he lays out, first of all, he starts by explaining why some of the things he's going to talk about in this treatise seem to be retreading the same stuff that he talked about in the De Anima. Uh, but he said in the De Anima, we were discussing the soul kathautain by itself, on its own, um, and each of its capacities. Um, but here we're going to discuss certain distinctive and common activities, he says, of uh, of animals, um, excluding features that are peculiar to the soul. So in the De Anima, he talked about features that are idea of the soul, uh, don't belong to uh, a common unity of body and soul. Here he's going to only talk about things which are, as he says, common to body and soul. Um, and he's not going to restrict what he discusses to capacities of the soul. So for example, respiration is not something that Aristotle says is actually a capacity of the soul. Um, if you read through the De Anima, respiration isn't discussed. Perception's discussed, uh, locomotion is discussed a little bit, reasoning, imagination, uh, respiration, no. So he then lists the things that he's going to talk about in a very abstract way. He says, first of all, I'm going to look at things that belong to all and only animals. Paradigmatic case perception, which actually defines what it is to be an animal, is to have perception. Um, and then he's going to talk about things that belong more widely, things that belong to all living things. So he's going to talk about uh, life and death and the causes of life and death. And he's even going to include plants in that discussion. And he's going to talk about youth and old age, uh, the fact that some animals uh, are different when they're young versus as they get older, and he's going to talk about the causes of aging. And then he's also going to talk about things that um, are common to body and soul but are more narrow than all animals. Uh, and uh, respirations. Uh, a good example there. Aristotle thinks that respiration belongs to some animals, but not all animals. Uh, same goes for memory and sleep, which he also discusses in the Parva Naturalia. So there's a very clear plan of organization to this treatise, and there's a reason why the things in this treatise are in this treatise and not somewhere else, if you like. All right, so the starting point of this work, where it's located, is fairly late in the Parva Naturalia, so a lot has been accomplished by the time you get there, and that's very important for understanding it. Uh, just prior to the part of the treatise where respiration is discussed, he's finishing a treatise on the the uh, sort of the lifespan, um, why it is that some animals live longer and some live shorter. Um, and right at the end of that discussion, he says it remains for us to study youth, old age, life, and death. For having defined these things, our norm-guided inquiry, our methodos, so I'm translating that as norm-governed inquiry, um, concerning the animals would have achieved its end. And there's the Greek uh, for that last bit. Uh, a recent graduate student who's done work on, uh, uh, done a dissertation on uh, the Parva Naturalia coined the term yolder for this last bit of the Parva Naturalia because the last bit is divided up in modern editions into books on youth and old age life and death and respiration. That's yolder. Uh, that's so you don't have to say all of that every time you refer to it. Um, so it begins in the following way. Uh, we must now discuss youth, old age, life and death. And notice what comes next. Presumably at the same time, 
It's also necessary to discuss the causes of respiration, for in some animals, living and not living are dependent on this. So you have to talk about it because you're talking generally about life and death. And in a class of animals, life and death depend on, at least in part, whether they can breathe or not. Um, and later on, when he's uh, actually criticizing Plato's discussion of respiration in the Timaeus, he makes the following comment. Um, Yet surely we see these things, breathing, breathing in, breathing out, um, to be sovereign over life and death. For when animals that breathe are unable to do so, at that moment they begin to pass away. So here's an interesting way in which teleology enters an investigation at a very general level, right at the beginning, right? Because Everybody knows they don't have to be scientifically investigating the organs responsible for breathing. Everybody knows that if an animal that breathes is prevented from breathing for very long, it dies. So what that tells you is in some general way, breathing must be good for life. It must support life in some way or other. So in some vague way you know right at the beginning of the inquiry, breathing is for something. But what, how actually does it help us live? That's the trippy question. We really didn't have the kind of answer we have today until the 19th century. In the 17th century, Harvey had basically the same answer to the question that Aristotle did. It's a tough question to answer in a more specific way than this. Okay, now, um, just, th this is a, a kind of lesson in textual analysis. The, the crucial thing to know here is that the chapter divisions in Aristotle's works were introduced in the first Latin printed edition of Aristotle's works uh, by Theodora Gaza in the late uh, 15th century. And so the chapter divisions are actually meaningless. And in this treatise, even the book divisions are essentially meaningless. And I'm going to be showing you a number of examples why it's really important to ignore the way the books are divided up and especially the way the chapters are divided up because you have to read right through the books sometimes to see the logic. If you, if you end at the end of a book and then put it aside for two weeks and then pick up the next book, start to read it, uh, you'll wonder why the hell is it starting that way? I can't figure out what's going on. Uh, okay, so the alleged, as I'm calling it, last sentence of on youth and old age, um, just before we begin to discuss respiration, says this. Since some of the animals are water dwellers, while others pass their time in the air and accomplish the task of cooling from and by means of these, some by water and some by air, we must discuss in what manner and how they do this by becoming better acquainted with the logos about it. And I'm translating it here uh, somewhat um, uh, interpretively as the debate about this. So the couple of things interesting to notice here. First of all, there's a very quiet assumption made, it's not made anything of here, that animals, some animals cool themselves by water and some by air. So there's an assumption that cooling is playing some role in the lives of animals that isn't explained. It's not said how it, it happens and it's not said, certainly not said why it happens. And what is this logos that Aristotle is talking about? Well, you find out at the alleged beginning of the next treatise, which is not the next treatise, called On Respiration, uh, because it opens. Now for those of you who know Greek, a clue that this is not the beginning of a new treatise is that gar, because that gar has to refer back to something that it's explicating. And it is, it's referring back to that sentence I just showed you. For a few of the natural philosophers have spoken previously, that's the logos, about respiration. Yet for what purpose it belongs to animals, some have said nothing while others, though they have spoken, have done so poorly due to lack of experience with the facts. 
Further, they say all animals breathe. This is untrue. So it's necessary first to review their claims in order that we not appear to level an empty accusation in their absence. Uh, and he is serious. This treatise only has, in the modern editions, 21 chapters. Seven of them are devoted to a careful criticism of uh, Diogenes, Anaxagoras, Democritus, Empedocles, and Plato on respiration. So he spends a lot of time talking about previous theories. And actually, one of the longest quotes in Aristotle from Empedocles is in these chapters. The other thing that's important to realize is you can't really understand the argument in On Respiration on its own. You have to go back and look at what he says in the previous chapters, which are in modern editions referred to as On Youth and Old Age. Okay, so um, now we get into the actual discussion. And this is one of the key texts that I want you to be thinking about um, uh, as we look at the inquiry in more detail. This is at the end of chapter three. Um, he's discussed the views of Anaxagoras and Diogenes on respiration. And he's been very critical of their results. And he concludes the chapter by saying, the most significant reason for them not discussing these things well is a combination of their being inexperienced with the internal parts and not grasping that nature makes them all for the sake of something. Now, I stress the tekai, and I really stress it by saying is a combination of and. Uh, the tekai means it's not just a conjunction, it means the two things together are important, and seeing them together is important. So he goes on, for inquiring for the sake of what, inquiring into the final cause, um, Inquiring for the sake of what respiration belongs to animals and examining this question in the presence of the parts, e.g. in the presence of gills and lungs, they would have discovered the cause more quickly. So notice what he's saying. What he's saying is, first of all, you've got to do dissection. Respiration is carried on by material bodily organs. It's not something that exists on its own by itself. It's, it's a material, formal unity that we're talking about here. Uh, but you not only have to look at the parts, you have to be asking the question, what are these parts for while you're looking at them? So the inquiry isn't just anatomy, it's functional anatomy. You have to be asking questions about the function of the parts while you're doing the anatomy. That's the crucial, uh, the crucial lesson that he wants you to learn. So this is, as I say, I think the first defense in the history of science of functional anatomy, of anatomy understood as an exploration of the functions of organs. But the interesting thing is, what Aristotle is asking the functional question about is not actually the, the function of lungs, it's the function of respiration. What is respiration for? So that shows you how much this inquiry is a material formal unity inquiry. It's not just an inquiry into what lungs are for, it's an inquiry into what the activity of lungs is for, what respiration is for. But Aristotle says you won't be able to make that inquiry without examining uh, the question of why gills and lungs are present. So that's interesting. The other thing that's interesting is the mention of gills. Aristotle makes a crucial discovery in this treatise, or in the work that stands behind this treatise. He is the first person to realize that gills carry on the same function as lungs. And notice right here, he's already hinting at that discovery. Because he says we should look at both lungs and gills, and yet he's already said only animals with lungs breathe. Respiration only belongs to animals with lungs. 
So why the hell would he even mention gills here? Hint, hint. That's all it is, just a hint. His main criticism, I won't three, read through these passages because they all make the same point, but these are three passages in those chapters, four, five, and seven in this case, of three thinkers who have done a lot of work examining the question of uh, what respiration is, and he criticizes all of them for not examining the relevant parts while asking for the sake of what. They have not even asked that question. Um, that's a standard view of his about Democritus and Empedocles, you see it all over Aristotle that they don't, they don't ask the teleological question, that's a huge mistake they're making. Um, you might find it a little odd that he says the same thing about Plato's discussion in the Timaeus, but if you go and look at the discussion of breathing in the Timaeus, it's all a mechanical explanation. It all has to do with a kind of uh, physical necessity that causes the air to flow in and out of the body through different, different means. Now, um, the rest of the talk, what I'm going to be looking at is what I think is Aristotle's crucial methodological discovery here, that you have to examine uh, a subject matter in a particular way in order that you're going to be guided toward a discovery of the final cause of the thing you're examining. Um, and it has to do with a number of things. One is finding coextensions between parts. That's step number one. Step number two is looking at anatomical connections among parts and comparing the results of those two investigations, comparative anatomy investigation and the dissection investigation. And finally, um, constantly asking while you're doing those investigations, what might this be for? What's the purpose of, of this structure that I'm examining? You don't have to know the answer, you just have to be asking the question. Okay, so these are points I've made as I've been going along, so I'm just going to jump over them to some extent. Um, the main point is that this is going to exemplify that very vague idea in the physics book two, that the investigation is going to be a unified investigation of a functional part of matter and form, and not just the, the parts. Okay. So the question we're gonna be looking at then is, when we look at on respiration, what role do his discoveries about the anatomical details of the parts that he's examining, and the textures of the material that the parts are made out of, and the correlations between parts across various kinds, and looking at where those correlations break down, where they're robust and hold up and where they break down as you study across the whole animal kingdom. How does that guide him towards an answer to the teleological question of what respiration is for? Okay. So we're interested in figuring out what these are for and trying to figure out how Aristotle goes about answering that question and then how he figures out that these are for exactly the same thing. And what I want you to see is that this is really the same issue as that issue I asked you about earlier, about the statisists in widely different organisms. There is nothing visibly similar between gills and lungs. And it's, you know, it's hard for us to realize because we take it for granted, but it was an enormous leap of discovery for Aristotle to realize that these are functionally identical things. How did he do it? That's, you know, it's an amazing feat. Okay, so we have to go back to On Youth and Old Age and see what he says about the heart first. That turns out to be a very big part of the story. Um, Aristotle believes that the heart is the source 
of the blood vessels and that makes it different from all the other visceral, visceral organs. Uh, why is that? Well, he says because we can see that the blood vessels don't run all through the heart, they originate in the heart. So the, the blood vessel systems start by leading out of cavities within the heart. Um, whereas all the other organs, the blood vessels just run all through the organ and then eventually just disappear into the organ. And he says this is clear from our dissections, that we've, we've done the dissections and we realize the heart is critically different. It's where the blood originates. It's the origins of the, of the vascular system. <clears throat> and he makes the same point in a different way in On the Generation of Animals where he says the, the, the heart appears first in biological development. Um, for it's the source in all blooded animals of the uniform and non-uniform parts. So he sees how the heart, as Harvey also comments in De Motu Cordis, is there at the beginning pulsing away. Harvey actually thinks it's a little pulsing living blood that eventually turns into the heart. Aristotle says, and Aristotle's right on this one, that it's a, a heart that's there and it's there right at the beginning and then the blood vessels begin to grow out from it and then the other organs begin to form uh, at the ends of the various branches of the blood vessel system and so on. And Aristotle says that's another dissection or, you know, provided reason for thinking that the heart is the origin of uh, uh, the, the rest of the vascular system. He also is working very hard in this work to get the actual coextensions of the internal parts clear. So here's a passage where um, he is working on that. Um, in those animals that are blooded and have a heart, he says, as many as have a lung all take in air and cool themselves by inhaling and exhaling. And all that are both internally and not merely externally live-bearing, he's thinking of the animals that um, uh, actually produce an egg internally but then um, uh, uh, produce a live animal to the, to the environment. Um, all of these have a lung, um, as do many among the egg layers, both those that are feathered such as birds and those that are scaled such as tortoises, lizards, and snakes. Okay, so he's trying to get the extension of uh, all the animals that have hearts and lungs and get the, the, coexten the coextensive group, the group that's coextensive with all the animals that have hearts and lungs together. That double quantifier that is strictly redundant in the Greek, that hossa panta, is something you find very, very predominantly in the Historia Animalium, which has led uh, myself and Alan Godhelf to argue that one of the primary purposes of the Historia Animalium is to find these coextensive universal correlations in the animal kingdom. So what he appears to be doing here um, is to try and identify within a wider background class, the background class in this case is the, the blooded animals, the animals with hearts, uh, all those that have both hearts and lungs. Okay, so there's another um, subclass, however, that have hearts but don't have lungs. Um, as many as have gills all cool themselves by taking in water, both the kind consisting of the so-called salations, that's the, the sharks and rays and so on, and the other footless animals. And all the fish are footless and indeed what parts they have um, is named for its likeness to wings and that's just a reference to the similarity in the Greek of the of the two terms. Notice that the language here is teleologically uncommittal. Uh, all he says is the animals with gills cool themselves by taking in water. He doesn't say how they do that and he doesn't say they have gills for the sake of doing that. So there's a correlation between gills and water cooling that he identifies here without explaining it at all. So there's no causal claim here, there's just a correlation identified. And he then goes on to point out that there's one serious anomaly 
that he needs to think about. And here he is. Isn't he cute? Um, so that's an animal called the Cordylus. Uh, Aristotle is quite fascinated by him, refers to him five times in the corpus. Um, and here's what he says. Um, of those animals with feet, only one of those ha that have been studied has gills. Notice how careful he is. He's leaving it open that there'll be others. So the only, of, of the animals I've studied, this is the only one I've found uh, that has gills and four legs. Um, none that have lungs and gills at the same time has yet been seen. There, he's being very careful again. He's not ruling out the possibility that he'll find an animal that has both. Uh, but he's saying, so far, this is, this is it. And he goes on and says, why? Look, lungs and gills are for the same thing. They're, they're there for cooling. And you don't need two organs to do exactly the same thing. Okay, so that's interesting. I, I just point out here that he's again being quite cagey about the causality. So he says lungs are for the sake of cooling by breath. But when it comes to the gills, he says the gills are pros cooling from water. So um, pros can be sometimes translated for the sake of or for, but it's a much less for Aristotle. That language of henica, that's the final causal language. To back off to this means he's still being quite cagey about exactly what gills are doing. Okay, um, I got really curious about this guy a couple of years ago. Um, I wondered whether I could get a fairly precise identification of the critter and I found out something I wasn't expecting to find out. So I got in touch with people. This turns out to be um, a really superstar organism for people doing EVO-DEVO, evolutionary developmental biology, for a specific reason that you'll see in a moment. Um, so here's what Wikipedia says, source of all knowledge and ignorance, as we say. Um, um, so all it says is that the larval stage may last from days to years, depending on the species. But it makes it sound like eventually all these organisms go beyond the larval stage. So I mentioned how Aristotle, so I got in touch with these guys and here's just the relevant bit of the email that they got back, that I got back from them. Um, these are people at the Center for Biodiversity in uh, Leiden in the Netherlands. Um, and he says, uh, altogether the most likely explanation is that Aristotle is referring to a so-called pitomorphic newt. Um, he goes through the three species that live in the areas that Aristotle would have been familiar with, especially the Macedonian uh, mountain areas. Um, and then he says, what remains, this is uh, down here, what remains is that the phenomenon of pitomorphosis is more regularly found in mountain populations of Ichthosaura alpestris than in the other two species. So what is this? Well, it turns out that in this species, and in fact all of the species, but more in this one than the others, there are individuals who never go beyond the pitomorphic stage. So they remain newts throughout their life until they die. And they actually are mature. So in the same way that people think probably some of the features that are peculiar to human beings are because of pitomorphosis in us, that um, some of the features that are uh, features of the young of other primates are features that we keep until adulthood. Um, so with these guys, some of them keep those youthful features all the way through their life, which means they never do develop lungs and they continue to have to use those feathery gills um, to get oxygen from water throughout their lives. Um, and I found this fascinating that there are actually organisms that, uh, so Aristotle could well have, I used to think, oh well he just looked at them sort of casually and he was looking at them when they were in the newt stage and he just assumed it was a distinct species. It's now possible that he was actually examining organisms that through their entire lives 
remained in this state. Um, because uh, it's the most common in a species that is common in northern Greece, as a matter of fact. So I found that quite fascinating. All right, but that raises serious problems for Aristotle because that doesn't seem to fit any of the categories he's working with, right? All right, notice though that what's happened. The inquiry has changed focus. Remember the inquiry started as an inquiry into respiration. It's quietly changed into an inquiry about cooling. Why? Um, Aristotle has realized that some animals that have the heart and the cardiovascular system that requires cooling don't have a lung. So that just raises the obvious question. If you've already established that the lung is there for the sake of cooling the heart, by means of air, how the heck do fish do it? And how the heck does the cordylus do it? So the investigation has shifted to a more universal level. It's now shifted to the level of all animals that have hearts. And the question now is, how do the ones that don't cool themselves by means of lungs cool themselves? Okay, so um, what he's understood prior to this argument is that the heart, in order to produce its nutritive function, has to do so by means of heat. And Aristotle's view is that if something doesn't regulate that heat, it'll just burn itself out the way a fire burns itself out eventually. So something has to regulate the heat so that it doesn't consume itself, so to speak. Uh, he has a very good argument, as we'll see, for uh, uh, the case that the lungs are there for that purpose. And we're now going to see how he makes the parallel case for the other blooded organisms. And what I want to argue is that it's the constant teleological focus. It's constant focus on the question of what respiration is for. And if that's what it's for in animals with lungs, how do these other creatures do it that gets him to his discovery? Okay, so now um, for the last few minutes, what we're just gonna do is read through one chapter very carefully, chapter 16 of On Respiration, where you see him sort of revealing what he's discovered. So here's the first bit, and I apologize, I'm gonna actually read through a good bit of this uh, because uh, I want you to see the way the argument develops. For what reason those that have a bloody lung breathe most is clear from these facts. For those that are uh, warmer have need of greater cooling. And the way in which the heart has a passageway to the lungs needs to be studied both from the dissected animals and from what has been written in the inquiries concerning animals. So how the heart has a connection to the lung is necessary to study from the anatomies from the dissections, as I would say, uh, and also from what's been written in the history of animals. Um, ignore the chapter break again, uh, because it takes place at line 25 there. And if you actually broke the chapter and put it away and then came back and read the next chapter, you'd have no idea what was going on again. So here's a reference to the results of dissection that he's using to support the way in which the heart is connected to the lungs by means of the vessels that, uh, that go to the lungs. By the way, it's interesting that what he uses here is a participle for the verb referring to dissecting rather than his usual, he usually refers to what appears to be books of, of diagrams. Here he's clearly saying this is what you would see if you actually did the dissecting. It's a, it's a, it's a participle of the verb. Okay, so he goes on. Um, generally speaking, the nature of animals has need of cooling on account of the setting of the soul aglow in the heart. And there he's just picking up on what he said earlier. Because you have this sort of constant fiery production going on in the heart, you need something to control it or it's just going to uh, destroy itself. And again, reminding us of the correlations he's discovered, as many animals as have not only a heart but a lung produce this cooling by respiration. Those having a heart 
without a lung, as with a fish, produce cooling by the water passing through the gills. So there's the crucial um, argument. Um, fish have hearts, so they need the cooling. Um, but the question at this point is, why does Aristotle so confidently state that that happens by means of the gills? Uh, well, here's his argument, and it's, it's, uh, it's quite brilliant, and I think it reveals how he actually did the investigation. Um, you can actually, I think, see behind the text to the investigation by looking at this. <clears throat> the heart is positioned in relationship to the gills one ought to study for, and this is the passage, by the way, that Fabricius was referring to in that opening passage I showed you. Um, study for the purposes of visualizing from the dissections and for the purpose of precision from the history. So uh, there's the stuff that Fabricius was referring to. So there's prostein opsin and there's prosta acribean, just like the quotation in, in Fabricius. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of references to these works of dissections, and we know from the catalogs, the ancient catalogs of Aristotle's works, that there were 10 books of these diagrammatic representations of dissections. We don't know what they look like. Uh, we don't know how diagrammatic they were. We don't know whether they were more realistic or less realistic. Um, but, uh, but there clearly were lots of them. Aristotle refers to them 28 times in his own writing, and we have these catalogs that tell us there were many books of them. And these are some other references, and he very often um, as I've showed you in all of these passages, distinguishes these as what you need to visualize what he's talking about, as opposed to the Historia Animalium, where he'll give you a written description of what he's talking about. Okay, now we begin to get the argument for the fish. Since the head, in the case of walking animals, and fish do not point in the same way, the heart has its apex towards the mouth. And what he's doing here is saying, don't be fooled by the orientation of the heart. If you just think about the way the body of a fish is oriented compared to the way our bodies are oriented, it'll make much more sense to you. Uh, and then he goes on, there's a tube, uh, sinew vascular in character, extending from the top of the heart to the midpoint, where all the gills connect, to one another. So this is what he's talking about here. The, oop, I keep doing that, don't I? I keep. So here's the heart. Here's the tube going out to the heart to the, the various gills. So this is the common tube that then feeds into each of the gills. So this is the largest two, but on either side of the heart, others too stretch to the uppermost point of each of the gills through which the cooling comes about in relationship to the heart by means of the water continuously flowing through the gills. And in like manner, in those that breathe, the chest frequently moves up and down, breath being taken in and expelled like the gills. So he's comparing the uh, changes in the size of the lungs as you breathe to the way in which the gills are constantly flapping as uh, they do their cooling. So there's a <clears throat> not only the anatomical connections between the heart and the gills that are just like the anatomical connections between the heart and the lungs, but you also have similar behavior of the lungs and the gills. That's another hint that they may be performing the same function. But the important thing is, you know there has to be something cooling the blood because these creatures have hearts too and that blood needs to be cooled somehow or other. Okay, and here's how he concludes. The breathing animals are suffocated in a small amount of air that remains the same for each of them rapidly becomes hot since contact with the uh, blood heats each animal. The idea here is uh, we can do the same kind of experiment with a different theory in the background. His idea is if you uh, enclose an organism in a container 
so that it has to keep rebreathing the same air. Now we say eventually it's just breathing in a whole lot of carbon dioxide and it's going to kill itself. Um, he says it's because it's breathing out hot air but it can't breathe in cool air. So it's just breathing out hot air and then breathing in the hot air again. So it's going to just heat up, heat up, heat up, heat up, heat up. So uh, he knows the same result, they're going to die. His explanation is they're going to die because they're just breathing in hot air over and over and over again. It can't perform the cooling function. Very, very clever and it shows again, he's performed an experiment here to, uh, to test something out. And the most important thing is this last passage where he says the lung in the case of breathing um, uh, when animals due to sickness and old age or the gills in the case of water dwelling animals is unable to move and at that point death results. So what he's saying here is that the very material natures of the lungs and gills are the same. That is as they harden and dry up in old age they don't perform the function as well because they can't move the way they need to move to perform that function. Okay, so um, you get the basic idea here. The key is to start with the nutritive soul that performs its nutritive functions by means of heat. And so something has to regulate that heat. Aristotle does the dissections he does with that basic theory in the background. Um, and because hearts are uh, common across all blooded animals, whether they have lungs or not, he faces a real problem. How do the animals without lungs cool the region around the heart? So here's what I think is the sort of critical innovation on his part methodologically. Um, Aristotle repeatedly points to dissections in this treatise, as he does in a number of others, but it's very prominent in this treatise. It's one of the reasons I wanted to look at it carefully. Um, and uses those dissections uh, to support his view about the heart. That's the first thing. We've seen that over and over again. Um, it's the source of the blood that nourishes all the other organs and you can tell that because of the way the heart is structured and how it's structured differently than all the other organs. Background theory dictates that nutritive function has to be performed by heating, cooking in essence, breaking down stuff by means of heat. Um, the dissection reveals that the way in which the cooling process takes place is by blood vessels going into the lungs and coming right up against the tubes that come uh, from the uh, uh, air passages into the lungs. And that points to the conclusion about how cooling is performed in those creatures. So how is it performed in fish? Well, uh, big problem. They live in water, so they can't breathe air. Um, they don't have lungs and Aristotle has a whole chapter in on respiration on cetaceans. He knows that they do have lungs. He knows they're air breathing. So he knows just living in water doesn't make it impossible that you cool yourself by means of air. So he does a lot of comparative dissection. Um, and what he notices is that the um, anatomy and location of the hearts of these two creatures are quite different, but they both have these tubes that start out large running from the heart and get smaller and smaller and smaller. In the one case they go to the gills and in the other cases they go to the lungs. Um, so that suggests to him um, this analogical identity between the gills and the lungs. <coughs> So he's now got a question, an answer to the question what breathing is for, which is the question he started out with, what's respiration for. He's able to now answer the question what gills are for by asking, by, by answering the question what are lungs for, then looking at the fact that what it's for is to cool the heart, but the heart has a wider extension than those animals with lungs. So now you need to look anatomically at what could possibly perform the same function in fish because there has to be something and the anatomy, the dissection gives him the very interesting identities between the relationship between the gills and the heart 
and the relationship between the gills and the lungs. So it's this interplay between asking the teleological question right from the start and doing the careful dissection that gets him to this crucial discovery. And of course, in chapter three, that's exactly what he was telling people. You've been making a mistake because you've either been doing the anatomy without the teleology, or in the case of Plato, doing the teleology without the anatomy. Um, bottom line is you've got to do them both or you're doomed to failure in this enterprise. Okay, so summing up, um, what we've got here is a concrete case of Aristotle doing what he said you have to do when you're studying natural things. You have to study the bodily parts, the material part of the organism, but you have to be studying it functionally and that means asking the question, what are these parts for? What is, what is their purpose? What is their function? While you're doing the inquiry. Uh, so what we have here is somebody who is one of the greatest comparative anatomists of all time um, and also somebody who says comparative anatomy without teleology, that is comparative anatomy that isn't functional anatomy, is doomed to failure. So it's uh, uh, I think an amazing feat that he's accomplished and I hope I've convinced you of the same thing. Thank you.